This is Count Dracula, wishing you a very happy Halloween! <laughs> everyone and welcome to the historically haunted podcast i am your host ariel and i am so happy to have you here for episode two of my three-part halloween series i pre-recorded all of the halloween episodes this year so i wanted to thank you all for the kind itunes reviews and for those that have signed up for my patreon group i will give you all a future shout out after the halloween season but i just wanted to say thank you so much Today, we will be discussing the most haunted house in New Orleans, the LaLaurie Mansion. In the last episode, I gave a warning about graphic case file descriptions from the Lizzie Borden case, but the disturbing things that have actually happened inside the LaLaurie Mansion do not hold a candle to last week's episode, because this week, we will be talking about a serial killer. If you get queasy when talking about body disfigurement and torture, then this might not be the episode for you. And if you have to leave at any time, I wish you all a very happy Halloween, and I hope to see you back for the last Halloween episode coming out on October 31st, and it's covering The Legend of Loftus Hall. All right, I hope that you guys are ready for this episode because we are going to go down to one of the most magical places in the United States, New Orleans. On the surface, New Orleans, Louisiana is famous for its fantastic food, jazz music, the Saints football team, Mardi Gras celebration, hurricanes, and voodoo practices. People who have been to the city claim that it has an energy that's not like anywhere else, an electric charge to the city that you can see and feel. New Orleans is marketed as a fun, colorful, musical city, and it's totally all of those things. I will be planning a visit someday in the near future, and I cannot wait to go. But when you start to look deeper into the history of New Orleans, you will start to see some darker moments of the past. Throughout her history, the city has seen people suffer from yellow fever epidemics, slavery, war, bad fires, racial injustices, and the city flooding multiple times. In modern history, Hurricane Katrina that came through the city in August of 2005 left 1,833 people dead and caused an estimated $125 billion in damages. Many people believe that the natural vibrant energy in the modern day city, along with the tragic history of the area, creates the perfect hotspot for paranormal activity. Savannah, Georgia claims that it is the most haunted city in America. But New Orleans also claims that it holds the top spot. And looking at its history, I would say that maybe both cities are tied for first place. The city is just as famous for its beignets as it is its ghosts. But among the haunted hotspots, there is one house that stands among the rest. Madame Lollery's Mansion. <laughs> New Orleans is located on the Mississippi River 100 miles from the river's mouth. 
Since the early 1700s, New Orleans has remained the main city of Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico's biggest northern port. The first known people to live in the area were the Native American cultures of the Woodland and Mississippians. Explorers passed through the area in the 15 and 1600s, but few European settlers chose to stay in the area permanently, even though France had claimed the area in 1682. In 1718, the governor of French Louisiana chose the site for New Orleans, and then in 1722, he moved Louisiana's capital from Biloxi to New Orleans. Unfortunately, a hurricane destroyed most of the original city that same year. It was rebuilt in the grid pattern that you see in today's French Quarter. In 1762 and 1763, France and Spain signed treaties giving Spain control of Louisiana. The French regained ownership of Louisiana in 1800, and then they sold it to the United States three years later with the signing of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Now for this episode, I'm only going to be talking about the LaLaurie Mansion, so we will not be going into any in-depth look into New Orleans history today. But don't worry, we will come back to New Orleans and do a whole episode on the history and other haunted locations. What makes this haunted location different and so famous is that the LaLaurie Mansion used to be the home of an alleged serial killer. And not just any serial killer, a female serial killer. Many people to this day have a hard time wrapping their heads around the fact that women can kill. And when women do kill, people normally try to justify it with big long-winded explanations, or if the case is old enough, they will add things that no one knows is true or not. I talked about this in the Lizzie Borden case. People to this day name a laundry list of things as to why or even say that she could never have done such a thing. Only problem is history and psychology shows us otherwise. Over the course of human existence, females have been driven to murder and it's happened way more than people think. But true female serial killers are rare. One reason for this is because women got away with it more often than men. One example from hundreds of years ago is that many of these women were in noble and rich families and they had power and influence to protect them. Many people point to Elizabeth Bathory as the first well-known female serial killer. She was a Hungarian noblewoman who lived from 1590 to 1610. She allegedly tortured and killed 650 people, mostly young women and girls. And according to legend, she bathed in the blood of the virgins that she killed to keep up her youthful appearance. Her crimes earned her the nickname the Blood Countess, and her legend was one of the inspirations for Dracula. Now, there is still debate about if she was a killer at all, because some historians think that the killings and the torture charges were made up just for other nobles to take over her land, and the story became more embellished over the years. But now that we know more about serial killers in general, it is getting harder to pretend that this could not have been possible. According to documented cases from 1900 to 1910, 11% of convicted serial killers are women. The word serial killer is fairly new. In the 1930s, a German criminologist described the first concept of a serial murderer. This definition evolved over time, and by the 1980s, the official use of the word serial killer was written in a newspaper article. Today, the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation defines a serial killer as a series of two or more murders committed in separate events, usually but not always by one offender acting alone. These cases go all the way back to BCE with both men and women. The Jack the Ripper murders that happened in London during the year 1888 was the first to create a media spectacle and mass hysteria. And many point to this moment in history as the first human fascination with true crime and cold cases. In the early 1890s, H.H. Holmes was the first documented modern serial killer in the United States. He created a hotel near the World's Fair in Chicago that was used to capture and kill the guests. He killed anywhere between 25 to 200 people, and his hotel earned the nickname the Murder Castle. Another famous killer in the United States was Madame Delphine Lollerie. Her story and the violence she inflicted on people inside her home was horrific, and people are still trying to understand what drove her to such cruelty. While some try to justify her actions, others point to her being a true psychopath. 
Marie Delphine McCarty was born in New Orleans on March 19, 1787, during the Spanish colonial period. Her family was very prominent in the New Orleans area. The family's presence in Louisiana began when Delphine's great-grandfather fled Ireland for religious reasons and settled in France in the early 1700s. He joined the French Navy, eventually becoming a major general. His son, Bartholomew, who was Delphine's grandfather, was born in France in 1706. When Bartholomew turned 17, he joined the Musketeers. He later became the chief aide to a high-ranking officer. In 1732, Bartholomew and his older brother were sent to French Louisiana, and Bartholomew was promoted to captain in 1735. He served France in Louisiana until 1764. Delphine's father, Louis Bartholomew McCarty, was born in the New Orleans area around 1751. He later married Marine Jean Larrabee and together they had seven children. Little is known about Delphine's childhood, but she was raised on the family's plantation and her parents were very wealthy, so it's believed that she lived comfortably. The plantation was located upriver from the center of New Orleans. Her parents were prominent in the city's European Creole community. Her uncle was the governor of the Spanish-American provinces of Louisiana and Florida from 1785 to 1791. One of her cousins was mayor of New Orleans from 1815 until 1820. So it's not hard to see how she inherited so much power and influence. Delphine was four years old when the Haitian Revolution began in 1791. Enslaved people rose up against the French colonists and fought for their independence for 12 years. This revolution created fear among the slaveholders in the United States that this could someday happen to them. Many owners treated their enslaved persons even more severely, hoping to avoid a rebellion. Delphine was married three times. Her first marriage was on June 11, 1800, when she was only 13 or possibly 14 years old. Her husband, Don Ramon de Lopez, was a high-ranking Spanish officer. In 1804, Don Ramon was called back to Spain following the Louisiana Purchase. Delphine was pregnant at the time, but accompanied him anyway. The ship made a stop in Havana, where Don Ramon died suddenly. Delphine gave birth to a daughter and then returned to New Orleans. Delphine married again in June of 1804. Her second husband was John Blanc, a successful banker, merchant, lawyer, and legislator. Blanc bought a house at 109 Royal Street in New Orleans, and it was later called Villa Blanc. Together, they had four children, but Blanc later died in 1816. Delphine's third marriage was on June 25, 1825, to a much younger man named Dr. Leonard Lalaurie, a 22-year-old physician originally from France, and together the couple had two daughters. Then, in 1831, Delphine purchased property with an unfinished residence located at 1140 Royal Street in her own name, and she managed the property on her own. In 1832, she commissioned to have new construction completed on the two-story mansion with slave quarters attached to the home. Madame Lalaurie and Leonard lived there with their two daughters. The couple often threw extravagant parties for high-end society, where their guests enjoyed the finest foods and champagne. Pain. The status of the relationship between Delphine and Leonard is not clear. Apparently, Madame Lalaurie asked for a separation from her husband in November of 1832 because he had, quote, threatened her in such a manner as to render their living together unsupportable. Some of the children confirm that this was the case. However, this separation doesn't appear to have been permanent, as I'll explain later. Around the time of the separation, rumors began circulating in New Orleans about Madame Lalaurie and her treatment of her enslaved persons. These rumors did not match how she acted in public, however, because Madame Lalaurie was said to be polite and attentive to her enslaved person's well-being. Even with the kind outwardly appearance, the rumors became so widespread that a local lawyer was sent to speak with Delphine in order to make sure that she understood the laws for treatment of her slaves. Louisiana had enacted the Code Nero in 1724, which was a set of rules that regulated the treatment of enslaved people. The code required enslaved people to be taught the Catholic religion, given food and clothing allowances, and allowed to rest on Sunday. It also gave them the right to ask for a public prosecutor if they were ever mistreated.
And I hate knowing that codes and laws like this existed in the states where slaves were okay, because at the end of the day, they still owned other human beings. It should never have been okay. But the fact that they had this invisible kind of wall, like we don't cross this line, so it can't be that bad. I think that's really how they justified a lot of what they did back then. One, it was just how it was. I get it. But number two, it's like if you have this fake law, well, I mean, I say fake because a lot of the plantation owners were super rich. They could just pay people off. They knew all the politicians. They knew the governors. You're going to find that happens in this story as well. So they got away with stuff that even on paper they shouldn't have gotten away with. So it just boggles my mind that they had these rules and laws, even though it didn't really mean anything to the poor people that were being mistreated in this horrific way. After the lawyer came to visit Delphine, he claimed that he did not find any evidence of mistreatment. It's very possible that Madame LaLaurie paid off the lawyer or used her affluence to get around it and possibly got him to take this off the books. I found some historians thinking that this actually did happen and I agree with them. And the reason for that is because documentation of the actual investigation has never been found, but there are records showing that Madame LaLaurie paid for legal consultation at this time and did sell a few of her enslaved people after she was investigated. Now, some people uh, think that she found a way to keep this off the books, whether doing a off-the-books deal to, you know, cushion the blow of what was actually going on inside her house, or possibly, like I mentioned before, the lawyer knew her, so they just kind of did a off-the-books deal. According to funeral registries of the years 1830 to 1834, there are a documented 12 deaths of enslaved persons at Madame LaLaurie's mansion. Causes of death are not mentioned, so diseases and injuries could have been the reasons for these deaths. Five of the 12 people who died were from the same family including one adult and four children. These deaths were spread out from 1831 to 1833, and the ages of the children ranged from two years old to 13. The mother, Bonnie, was about 30 years old when she died inside the mansion, and according to records, she was a laundress and a cook. In 1836, Harriet Martineau visited New Orleans. Harriet was a writer that reported on high society. While she was visiting the city, she was told of the rumors regarding Madame LaLaurie. She published the rumors and reported that people working in the mansion were seen to be, quote, haggard and wretched. Harriet's rumors caused quite a stir in New Orleans, and she continued to publicize stories about the cruelty of Madame LaLaurie. Supposedly, in 1836, a neighbor of LaLaurie witnessed an eight-year-old enslaved girl fall from the roof of the Royal Street mansion and die. It was said that the girl was trying to avoid being punished by Madame LaLaurie who was chasing her while wielding a whip. The girl was buried on the mansion property. In later years, the story has been embellished to say that the little girl was brushing LaLaurie's hair and pulled on a snag. Then LaLaurie began chasing her with a whip, and the girl ran to the window and jumped to her death. The girl's age was also increased to be 12 years old. After this accusation, another investigation was held at the LaLaurie's mansion, and this time they were found guilty of illegal cruelty and were forced to sell nine of their slaves. But apparently, the LaLaurie's were able to have family members secretly buy them back and then return them back to the mansion. After this, Harriet wrote another report claiming that the LaLaurie's kept their cook chained to the kitchen stove and that Madame LaLaurie would beat her daughters if they dared try to feed any of the enslaved people food. With all of these rumors and bad press circulating throughout New Orleans, members of high society were no longer eager to attend Delphine's parties. In fact, the LaLaurie family became isolated from other socialites. All of these rumors would come to a head April 10, 1834. Now, the events on a April 10th, the main events anyway, I should say, actually did happen. But much like the Lizzie Borden case, people kind of embellished and added certain events to this actual day. So it is a little bit murky on exactly what happened, but the main story is true. A fire began in the mansion on April 10th, 1834. And even though Delphine and Leonard were separated, he was present at the mansion on this day. Now here's where it splits. So some people claim that there was a party that night and that's why Leonard was there. And just because 
because a lot of the high society and socialites didn't want to come to parties at their mansion didn't mean that all of them didn't want to come. So they held a party for the few holdout friends that they still had. And that's what was going on when this fire occurred. In the version that there was a party going on, everyone freaked out and ran outside, obviously, because fires were a really bad thing, especially since the city of New Orleans had had a bad fire that took the entire city out at one point in their history. So that's where everyone's minds went. So a whole crowd gathered outside the mansion actually during the fire. Now it said that if, if the story is true about the party, all the party guests ran outside and then became worried about everyone still in the mansion, including the enslaved people that the Lollaries still had. Just as a group of men were about to go inside the mansion and look for their hosts and anyone else left inside, it was said that all of a sudden, all of the servants came out of the mansion dressed to the nines with silver platters laden with food and drink, and they brought the party from inside the mansion outside on the street. Now, whether this happened or not, it doesn't really matter because the fire was very real inside the mansion. And when firefighters and police arrived on the scene, they soon determined that the fire had started in the kitchen. The firefighters rushed in and there they found a 70-year-old woman chained to the stove by her ankle. After she was rescued and safely away from the fire, she told the police that she had started the blaze on purpose in order to try to kill herself. She said that she was terrified of being punished for something she had done earlier in the day. She claimed that when anyone was punished, they were taken to the uppermost room and never seen again. The crowd outside the mansion had grown exponentially since the beginning of the fire, and firefighters and the bystanders overheard what this woman said to the police, and a large group of men demanded that the Lollaries give them the key so that they could go in and save anyone else left inside the mansion. However, Delphine and Leonard refused to give anyone the key. Not taking no for an answer, the bystanders turned into a mob and entered the mansion. When they reached the door for the slave quarters, they found that a giant oak door had been nailed shut and it took men over 20 minutes to break the door down. Once the door fell, a disgusting odor hit all of the men, making many of them vomit on the spot. It was clear to the group that they had made a horrible discovery. And this is your warning. I'm about to talk about some just disgusting things. So here's your warning now. You might want to skip ahead or even um, skip this episode entirely because the things that they discovered inside this part of the house is absolutely horrific. Here are excerpts from the New Orleans Bee, a French-English newspaper dated April 11th, 1834. Upon entering one of the apartments, the most appalling spectacle met their eyes. Seven slaves, more or less, horribly mutilated, were seen suspended by the neck, with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. These slaves were the property of a demon in the shape of a woman. They had been confined by her for several months in the situation which they had thus providentially been rescued and had been merely kept in existence to prolong their suffering and to make them taste all that the most refined cruelty could inflict. The quote from this newspaper is just one of the examples of cruelty that Madame LaLaurie inflicted on people at her mansion. This lady was just disgusting. She was sick. There had to be something wrong with her because not only were people stretched so much that their skin was literally tearing, there were reports of genital mutilation, body parts being cut off and reconfigured on other torsos. And remember that smell that made all the men throw up after they opened the door? There were decomposing bodies in there and the poor people who were still alive had to sit there dealing with the torture of whatever she inflicted on them and suffer this horrific smell of death because there were people in there that had already died from other weird experiments. And it gets worse. One person had the limbs reconfigured that made them look like a human caterpillar. And that's what people called that person, the human caterpillar. And ew, this is so disgusting. But they found one woman still alive, but she had her mouth shown shut. And when they un or when they were able to like cut it open, I guess, 
there was human feces inside of her mouth. And this is even worse than that. There was a man who was still alive and he had holes drilled into his head and supposedly maggots were coming out of it. So as you can probably tell, I'm having a really hard time talking about all this stuff. I hate talking about slavery in general. I hate that it's a part of our past, but when you lump in this kind of really sadistic torture element, this just is really hard to talk about and really disgusting. Now, as if these poor people haven't been through enough, after firefighters rescued the people from the slave quarters, they took them to City Hall of New Orleans and then put them on public display. As the news spread along with more newspaper articles about what was discovered inside the slave quarters in the Lollery Mansion, people became extremely angry. And the Bee reported that around 4,000 people had showed up to City Hall to view the rescued people. Perhaps they had to see the victims for themselves in order to believe it. Police investigators then continued their search on the property and located several graves, including that of a child. A short time later, angry local citizens went to the Lollery Mansion and tore it apart. By the time police arrived on the scene, barely anything was left except for the walls. It is unclear what happened to Delphine and Leonard after this. One account states that they had fled New Orleans by taking a carriage to the waterfront. And according to legend, on their way out of town, Madame Lalaurie had the audacity to wave at the crowd that was on the way to her mansion to destroy it. Once Delphine and Leonard got to the waterfront, they boarded a schooner and then traveled to Mobile, Alabama. From there, they made arrangements to sail to Paris. Two of Delphine's daughters and one of her sons lived with her in Paris as well. On August 15, 1842, one of Delphine's sons wrote a letter to his then brother-in-law living in New Orleans, stating that his mother wanted to return to New Orleans and apparently did not understand why she was forced to leave in the first place. It seems that the disapproval of her children and other relatives stopped her from returning to the city. So Delphine lived in Paris for the rest of her life. She died in 1849 at the age of 62. Much like her life, her death is a bit of a mystery. In 1888, New Orleans author George Washington Cable retold a popular but unproven story that Delphine had died in France from a boar hunting accident. Many believe that her body was then returned to New Orleans and she is buried in the St. Louis Cemetery. This is because in the late 1930s, a manager of St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 found an old copper plate in Alley 4 of this cemetery. The plaque was inscribed in French, and the English translation reads, Madame Lalaurie, born Marie Delphine McCarty, died in Paris December 7th, 1842, at the age of six and then blank. It's blank because you cannot make out the other number, but death records in France state that Delphine died on September 7th, 1849, at age 62. Leonard passed away in Paris, France on October 15, 1862, at the age of 59, and he was buried in a cemetery in Paris, France. Back in New Orleans, the Lollerie Mansion stayed in ruins for at least four years after Delphine and Leonard fled to France. The building that is on the property today was rebuilt by Paris Trastor. The building now has three stories and was built in the Empire style. Following the Civil War, it was used briefly as an integrated school during the Reconstruction era. During the 1880s, the building became a conservatory of music and apartments. The residence was remodeled and used as apartments again in the 1920s and 1930s. It has been owned by several people over the years, bouncing back and forth as apartments to a private residence. Even for a few years, it was a haunted bar. The most famous owner may be Nicolas Cage, who purchased the property in 2006 for $3.4 million. He ran into financial difficulties two years later, and the house was then abandoned due to foreclosure in 2009. One thing about this building is that people never stay in it for very long. When people buy the building to make a profit, the owners suffer bad luck. When it is used for apartments, people move out quickly. The main reason? The building is super haunted.
Before I talk about the ghost stories that are found in the house that's on the property today, I'm going to talk about some theories as to why Madame LaLaurie was this crazy. Now, these are all just theories. It's very hard to know much about her past from when she was a child, but one theory is that the Haitian Revolution really affected her deeply. Not only was she living in fear for many years as a child of a slave revolt, but she also supposedly saw her uncle get beheaded by one of his slaves. I don't know if that's true or not. I found a couple articles putting that out there that that might have happened. And then I found another article stating that that actually never happened. That was added after the fact. But that is one of the theories that she was so scared all the time. And as she was growing up, her parents inflicted harsher punishments on their plantation. So it drove her to this extreme that the harsher punishment she inflicted on her own slaves, the less likely they were to rebel. Not saying it's okay, just saying that that is a theory out there why some people believe that she was that extreme. Another theory is that, remember her husband, Leonard, he was a doctor, and some people think that he might have been more of a mad scientist kind of a doctor. Some believe that Leonard actually was the one behind a lot of the body disfigurement and really disgusting things that happened inside the mansion. Others think that Madame Delphine was already geared for this kind of harsh punishment. She already enjoyed it. Maybe she was a little sadistic. So when she married Leonard, who remember was much younger than her, they were the perfect mad Frankenstein pair. And that's just disgusting to say out loud. But that's a theory that the two were perfect for each other because they both loved to torture people. And he loved to be like the mad scientist element of it all. So they just did horrific things in their house while nobody really knew until word got out. There's another theory that all of it was Leonard. None of it was Madame Delphine. She was an innocent bystander in all of this and he was abusive so she could do nothing. Others claim that she was the sole uh, torturer and he could do nothing. Another theory is that she was torturing people in this horrific way because her mother had been recently killed in a slave revolt that happened on her mom's plantation. And Madame LaLaurie was trying to get information from her slaves who might have have known who did it. So she was torturing them to try to get information out of them. Some of the theories I found try to justify what she was doing. Others try to just explain the psychology behind what her mindset was at the time she was doing these things. But the main theory that I find is that she was just a psychopath and she liked torturing people. She got off on the pain that she inflicted on others. And while it is rare, some women are psychopaths. They don't have empathy. They don't feel for any anybody. They don't mind hurting others or animals. Like I said, we don't know anything about her childhood. She could have been this way her whole life. We just don't know until the records started coming out after this was all found out. And let's not forget that there's a letter that her son sent to someone in New Orleans stating that her mother never even understood why she had to leave New Orleans. So if that doesn't show a lack of empathy, I don't know what does. So those are all the theories as to Madame LaLaurie. Personally, I think she was just sick and crazy and I think that she truly got away with it because she could hide behind the fact that it was okay to have slaves and she had power and influence to get away with it for so long. Many paranormal investigators believe that that kind of pain and suffering that was witnessed in any building would be enough to leave a lot of residual energy behind. Perhaps the reason that this house is so famous is because it is shrouded in mystery. For the last 100 years, the house has been a private residence. The current owners do not offer ghost tours and they don't promote the mansion as being haunted. However, the house is a stop on many New Orleans ghost tours. The guides will have a group stand across the street from the mansion as they tell them the history and ghost stories. Stories of the hauntings began shortly after the mob had torn the house apart. People were afraid to walk on the same side of the street as the house because they reported hearing screams, moans, and otherworldly languages coming from the ruins. This became so bad that neighbors called a Catholic priest in for help. The priest refused to go to the mansion alone, so he recruited a group of Protestant army soldiers to go with him. 
They only lasted 15 minutes before they all ran out of the property and reported hearing, quote, otherworldly languages of the dead being spoken by angry spirits. After the house was rebuilt, various tenants had come and gone through the years. While the home was being used as tenement apartments for immigrants during the 1870s, the tenants reported hearing moans, groans, and screams during the night. They also heard sounds of dragging and rattling chains, scratching sounds under their floorboards, and even the smell of rotting flesh. These occurrences mostly were experienced by children, and it's believed to be because children are more sensitive to the paranormal than adults. While the children were reporting these strange occurrences to their parents, the parents chalked it up to overactive imaginations. However, this changed one night when a dock worker came home late from work. As he was walking up the stairs to his own apartment, he glanced up toward the landing and saw a large African-American man bound in chains standing there. The worker screamed at him to get out of his way and the figure didn't move. The worker then rushed up the stairs to try to push him out of his way. But when he put his hands on the man, they went right through him and then the apparition disappeared into a cloud of mist. During the late 1880s, an anonymous woman reported to a local newspaper about witnessing two terrifying events while living in the home. One day, she was walking up the stairs when she suddenly saw a woman in period dress standing at the top of the stairs holding a baby. The witness watched as the other woman suddenly threw the baby down the stairs. Terrified, the homeowner rushed towards to what she thought was her own child and when she reached the landing, the baby and the woman at the top of the stairs had vanished. Sometime later, this same homeowner entered her baby's room to find the same phantom woman hovering over her baby's crib. The mother rushed to protect her baby and the phantom vanished. Upon closer inspection, the mother realized that a sock had been shoved into her baby's mouth. The family moved out shortly after this incident. After this story hit the newspapers, the city created a postcard labeling the house as the Haunted House of New Orleans. A few tour guides that have stopped by the mansion have claimed that people often faint while looking at the house. Andrew Ward is a haunted history tour guide, and over the course of two and a half years, he claims that he had had 23 people faint in front of the mansion. It's also common for people walking by the mansion to see strange things. People have seen mist or sometimes described as smoke entering and exiting the home. Many believe that this is the manifestation of Madame Lalaurie. Some have even claimed to see the tail from a gown going through doors that are no longer able to open. People have also seen Madame Lalaurie looking out of windows and even standing on the balcony. A former resident named Jules Sobel used to often see the ghost of a young African-American girl in the courtyard. One day, he became concerned because she looked so sad. He went out to the courtyard and asked her who she was and what had happened to her. He never really saw her face because whenever he saw her, she was always sitting sadly looking down with her hair covering her face. After he asked these questions, she disappeared. Many people believe that this little girl is the ghost of the child that jumped to her death. She has been seen multiple times by both people inside and outside of the mansion. Many have seen her sitting on a ledge above the second floor balcony with her legs dangling over the edge. In 2019, the newest owners of the mansion allowed one paranormal group to come in and investigate. Katrina and Jack from the paranormal TV show Portals to Hell became the first ever paranormal team to investigate the mansion. At the start of the investigation, Katrina and Jack were met by the housekeeper, Lisa Hadley, who took them on a tour of the home. The actual owners of the mansion did not want to be seen on camera and wished to remain anonymous. While they were doing their walk around tour, they also met up with a former tenant named Annie Elsis. She lived in the house when they were being used as apartments in the 1960s. She lived in one of the apartments on the second floor, and while she only lived in the home from 1963 to 1964, her family experienced some weird things. 
One afternoon, her family came home to find their beds all pushed to the middle of the living room. Her whole family also heard screaming and moaning at night. This became so intense that even her father decided to sleep with the lights on. One evening, she looked out of the window and saw a little African-American girl in an old-style dress, and she was sitting on the corner of the roof with her feet dangling over the edge. Another time, she and her father were walking home from getting ice cream when she glanced up at her bedroom window and saw this same little girl sitting sadly on the ledge. These hauntings affected her into adulthood, and she is still scared to drive by the mansion, especially at night. 20 years later, she came back to the house to try to make peace with what she had witnessed, but she got pushed by unseen hands. When she came back to do an interview with Portals to Hell, she was nervous about being in the home, and while she was leaving after the interview, she nearly collapsed and felt emotionally drained. Before I talk more about the ghosts, there is another part of this legend that we need to talk about. Apparently, in the 1950s, the house was yet again being turned into apartments. This time, the city was thinking of purchasing the building, so they hired a developer to renovate them. The developer decided to put new floorboards in the bottom and top floors. So he ripped up the floorboards on the first floor to get a better look at the foundation and they discovered eight human skeletons. And apparently there were scratch marks on the under part of the floorboards. It appears that there were people buried alive under the floor and those otherworldly screams and languages that people were hearing from the home after it was destroyed were actually illegal slaves that had been buried alive and were begging for help in their native tongue. I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems like an urban legend because I could not find any actual documented proof that this happened. I could have missed something, of course, but I could not find anything online. So I'm not sure if this is all just part of the mansion's lore built up over time or if this actually happened. We do know a priest did actually visit the mansion after the Lollaries fled. So I do hope that it was just spirits and not actually people who needed help that nobody understood where the sound was coming from. I just, I feel like that would be awful. And it does add to the lore of the mansion. I just don't know if it's true. So during the walk around with Lisa, the Portals to Hell team found out that Lisa's mother lived inside the home and they both have had some strange things happen to them. They have been the housekeepers for many years and they have stayed throughout many tenants. One day in the mid-90s, Lisa was inside a room that at the time was being used as a home office on the first floor. Lisa's cousin was helping her set up a new fax machine for the owners, and Lisa and her cousin sent a test fax to Lisa's own machine at her house. Lisa watched as her cousin wrote, Hi Lisa, on one piece of paper and sent it to her fax machine. After this, both women left the house together and locked the door on their way out. When Lisa got home, she went to her fax machine to check to see if the one at the mansion had worked. And when she looked at the paper, it no longer said, hi, Lisa, like she saw her cousin write. But instead, it said, hi, I'm Madame LaLaurie. While the group walked to the first floor living room, Katrina suddenly got dizzy and told everyone her experience. Lisa told her that that happens to many people when they walk to that side of the home. The second floor kitchen has some activity as well. Katrina and Jack met up with another caretaker named Carol Williams. She told them that she does not like to be in the home by herself because she feels like she is being watched and gets an uneasy feeling. The kitchen door also opens and closes at random times. Some of the times, people have actually seen the doorknob turn, the door open, and then it slams shut. What is now being used as the dining room used to be Annie's apartment on the second floor. The current owners, housekeepers, and guests to the mansion have all seen an apparition of a little African-American girl in a white period dress in this room. She does not interact with anyone. Apparently, she just looks sad. 
There is a section of the home that used to be the ladies' parlor when the mansion was owned by Madame Lalaurie. Today, it's a small living room, and Lisa claimed that once in a while when she comes to clean after guests have stayed in the home, she has found candles, potions, and even Ouija boards scattered around the room. She thinks that people have used this room as a conjuring circle many times. After these items were found, the paranormal activity began to increase, and the reason portals to hell were even allowed to come to the house was because the activity got so intense that the owners did not know what to do. The backside of the house would have been used as the slave quarters back in the 1800s, and this area is now a secret room. To access this room, you actually have to push through a mirror to enter it. And this room has a creepy vibe, with shadow activity and strange moaning sounds and the sound of rattling chains. There is also poltergeist activity and loud banging sounds and objects have been thrown. During the actual investigation, the team did capture some interesting evidence. When they were about to begin, they were all in the kitchen setting up equipment, and Jack turned on the SLS camera to test it before moving to another room. But before they could move on, he noticed a small figure in the camera. Now, I don't like SLS cameras because I have read some articles about them, and I don't think that they work that well. The whole point of the camera is it's meant to map out a person standing in front of it, it's used for video games like an Xbox, but I have done some research on the camera itself and it makes stick figures out of literally anything because that's its job. It's literally supposed to find a person and map them out. So it creates patterns out of furniture and even the pixelated um, static of a dark room. So moving the camera around, like a lot of these paranormal investigators do, they have it handheld. They're not actually having it stationed. Uh, it's going to make it worse and it's going to make the camera kind of look for a stick figure no matter where you're pointing it. I also am not a paranormal expert. I will admit I have never been on an actual official ghost hunt yet. That's the reason I moved to my new state is so I can finally go do these things. Um, in 2023, I'm going to be doing actual ghost investigations. So I'm very excited for that. And maybe I will learn that the SLS camera does actually work. But just from the research I've done on the side, it's very hard to know if it's a ghost or if the camera is just making a pattern because that's what it's supposed to do. So I normally don't talk about SLS cameras being used, but this one could have actually been something. Because again, I'm not saying that they all aren't actual ghosts. Some of them might be. It's just hard to know what is and what isn't. This one I feel like might be because they got other evidence on the side correlating with the stick figure. So after the figure showed up, Katrina went to stand by it and Jack saw both Katrina mapped out on the camera and the small figure was still mapped out. And then the figure started moving around while Katrina was standing still. The figure went from sitting down to moving away to coming back to sit back down on the small chair again. When they turned on the geoport and started asking some questions, they asked it to tell them how many people were standing in the kitchen and they got an answer of nine. And that's exactly how many people with Jack, Katrina, and the whole crew were standing in the kitchen. The stick figure left, so Jack switched places with Katrina and then the figure came back and sat back on the chair. Jack asked, did you die at the hands of Madame LaLaurie? And they heard an answer of yes. Then Katrina asked if the figure was the little girl that Annie saw. And then she asked, do you remember Annie? And they got another answer of yes. After this, the stick figure disappeared and the activity dissipated. After this, they started their official investigation. Inside the secret room, they saw shadows move and they even heard a growl. They pulled out the geoport and asked who was with them and they got a female voice saying LaLaurie. And after this, they all heard and caught on camera an audible loud sigh. And then they saw a shadow move again in the dark room against the back wall. And in the footage, you can actually see a light reflection being blocked out by something. They tried to do a Ouija board session in the ladies' parlor. And while they did this, they did not get any movement of the planchette. But they did hear a strange loud knocking sound on the other side of a closed door. And out of nowhere, a candle that they had on the table suddenly went out as if someone blew it out. Later that night, Jack and Katrina split up, with Jack heading to the secret room with one cameraman, and Katrina went to the attic. 
Jack had some strange interactions with some loud knocking sounds, seeming to answer questions he was asking. The knocks finally stopped for a long time, and then Jack simply asked, do you want us to leave? And they received the loudest knock yet, so they left. The attic is also a hotspot for shadow figures, and there is one story of an electrician who was working in the room one day when he suddenly got hit over the head by an unseen object. This blow was hard enough that it caused him to bleed, and he fled the house never to return. Meanwhile, up in the attic, Katrina was with the producer and a cameraman, and the producer suddenly reacted because she saw something moving in the corner of the room. Katrina turned on the geoport, and for the longest time, they got no answers. Katrina finally asked a question of, what happened on the top floor? And they received a voice saying, a lot of hurt. Sadly, it seems that this mansion is still being affected by the tormented souls who died at the hands of Madame LaLaurie leaving the house to forever be marked with its dark history. Thank you all so much for joining me as we discussed the creepy stories of the Madame LaLaurie mansion. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode as much as possible because it really wasn't a very fun topic to talk about. I mean, I talk about death all the time on the show, so no death should be taken lightly. Death is always a sad situation for all involved, especially family members. But there was something about this one where this was actually torture that happened here. Torturous activity and it's really depressing to talk about and very disturbing to discuss what actually happened to the poor people living inside the mansion. But I hope that you guys were able to enjoy this episode for what it was. And while the hauntings are super creepy and sadly very perfect for Halloween, I hope that no one loses sight of the real stories of the people who actually suffered inside the mansion. This mansion even inspired a whole season of, I think it's called American Horror Story. I don't watch that show, but I believe that this mansion inspired a season. So that should put this mansion in perspective if you're listening from outside the States and have never heard of this uh, house before. That's how famous this mansion is to people in the United States. So once again, thank you all so much for joining me for our part two of our Halloween episodes. If you would like to get in contact with me, you can email me at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I have links to all those pages down below, along with a link to my Patreon page. I hope that you all enjoy the last few weeks of October, and I will see you guys back here on Halloween for our final episode of the Halloween season, Loftus Hall. Happy Halloween, everybody.